Welcome to the Big Break Software Podcast. We'll be talking with software startup founders, software coaches, and consultants, and how they found their own software success. And now, let's get started with the show. Hi, everyone. This is Jordy Wardman here, host of the Big Break Software Podcast, where I talk to top leaders in the software field, like Seth Godin, Andrew Warner of Mixergy, and many more. This is a show where we talk to proven founders about their 0 to 30,000 MRR journey and beyond. Today's episode is brought to you by OneStop.io. We have 45 developers waiting to take your idea to fruition. If you want a reliable full-stack development team with top talent that costs half as much as in-house developers and you know you can trust your SaaS or mobile app with us we'll give you the first 30 days no risk and we guarantee being on time and on budget or we finish the project at no extra cost contact us at onestop.io and we can talk about your SaaS project today before introducing today's guest, I want to give a big thank you to Jeremy Wise of Inspired Insider who introduced me to our guest today you can check out Jeremy's podcast at inspiredinsider.com. He's actually the guy that got me into podcasting. So thanks so much, Jeremy. Today, I'm excited to have startup advisor and attorney Leslie Cohen. Leslie counsels a variety of entities from small entrepreneurs and startup companies to large established businesses across many industries. She helps her clients with both equity and debt securities, including venture capital, private equity, and friends and family investments. Today, we're going to talk to Leslie about the proper ways to start up and structure your software as a service company. How are you today, Leslie? I'm great. Thank you. How are you, Jordy? I'm doing very well. I introduced you, but why don't you just start off telling us about who you are and what you do? Sure, absolutely. So I came from a background of, I spent seven years on Wall Street doing um, IPOs and mergers and acquisitions for large publicly held companies. And then I spent uh, 13 years here at a mid-sized firm here in Chicago, where I live, doing this, practicing the same kind of law, but for micro-cap publicly traded companies and um, large privately held businesses. And then about 10 years ago, my partner and I left. We really liked working with the entrepreneurs, the startups, the growth stage companies more so than the larger entities. And we started our firm with that purpose in mind and to keep fees in check for those companies. And it was really right at the same time as 1871, which is a startup incubator space was opening here in Chicago and the tech scene and the startup scene was starting to explode. Mm -hmm. And so because I had the background in securities law, which the laws that apply to raising a hundred million dollar round are the same as apply to raising a $250,000 seed round. And so kind of learned that market and started um, mentoring and speaking at the different accelerators and incubators around town and got really into the startup scene. And so at this point, the practice is really in three areas. One is representing startups in connection with their early round raises. Mm -hmm. uh, second part is day-to-day -day contract needs of those businesses. And then the third is mergers and acquisitions, whether they grow by acquisition or have an exit. Okay, great. W what is it about startups that you liked it sounds like you used to be doing big uh, mergers and acquisitions on Wall Street and in Chicago. Why Why did you like working with the smaller startups? Um, I like the excitement around it. I like working with people who have fresh new ideas and are excited about what they're doing and really want to make a difference and, and change the world rather than the, 
you know, super corporate culture. Okay. So you prefer working with smaller teams and it, it sounds like probably a more informal environment as well. Yes, absolutely. Okay, great. I, I think having done made that move myself, I think that I, you know, really understand and can empathize with the different issues that that arise as you start to build your business. Okay, great. So when would you say clients should start coming to speak to you? I mean, at what phase are your clients sort of first coming to you? Are they coming to you like they already have the idea and they have no money and they need to look to structure to get funds to start? Or can you just kind of walk me through like how clients come to you and like, and how sort of the startup, like what phase of the startup that you're used to working with? Yeah, I mean, really best case scenario is from day one where they haven't formed an entity yet. So yes, they they have an idea. Usually it's more than an idea. Usually it's a, you know, well-baked idea. Mm -hmm. um, but they're at the point of that they want to form an entity around it to protect them, whether, you know, they have a co-founder and they want to, you know, put that relationship in writing and formalize it more so, or they're in need of raising funds or they have their first potential client and they want to enter into a, you know, an agreement with that client in the name of an entity for liability protection rather than individually. So, you know, best case from my end is really from the beginning pre-formation of an entity. So I can help make that choice of which entity type, but often it's also they form that entity, they have their co-founder relationship and they're just ready to raise funds and don't know how to navigate that process. Okay, so when people come to you, a lot of the times I would I would think people are like, oh, well, I don't need you know to pay an attorney right now because my idea is not going. And then they set up a company by themselves or something. And maybe by the time they get to you, do you find that they've totally structured the company incorrectly and you have to kind of rip it all down? Or, or how does that work? I mean, if I came to you now with, with like, say, um, an LLC or something, and then you saw it was structured incorrectly to take on partners. Can you work within the framework that I've set up? Or do you say, well, listen, depending on what you see going in the future, you know, trying to raise more funds, you should really structure it this way. Yeah. It's really all over the board is the yeah. answer to that question. I typically say, you know, if it's, if it's if a business that you want, that you're building in order to run long-term or to have an exit or, and, or, to raise funds from more like strategic or friends and family, a one-off investor that's going to become sort of a co-founder, then I'm okay with an LLC. Uh -huh. um, the truth is though, if you want to raise, if you come to me and say, our goal is raising venture capital funds, then it's really important to be a Delaware C-Corp, at least here in the States. You know, I think that's pretty well known and, and there are reasons behind that. Venture capital funds need to invest in C-Corps for their own tax purposes to protect their own investors. And so, um, and there are other reasons behind that as well. But so if someone says, yes, I want to raise VC funds, then the question is, you probably need to convert from an LLC. At what point do you want to do that? Um, if you don't want to do it right up front, I always say, talk to your tax specialist, your CPA, before you go any further. Because mm -hmm. my concern is that the conversion at a later point where there's more value might be a taxable event. And I want to make sure that that doesn't happen. So 
you might need to make the change, you know, the conversion sooner. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. That makes sense before there's, as you say, that, that sort of event. You mentioned Delaware. Do you specifically always go to Delaware? Because I've heard there's, you know, there's Wyoming and Florida and some other um, tax-free uh, states. But any reason why you like Delaware? I like Delaware because the law is so well-developed in Delaware that if an issue arises, there's an answer pretty much always within the law of Delaware, whether statutory or in the common law. Um, you can find an answer rather than having a potential litigation issue, mm -hmm. you know, on your hands. The Delaware courts are also very business friendly. It's a, you know, a neutral venue. I've heard Wyoming lately as well. I just don't think the law is as well developed. And so, you know, that's what makes me nervous. So I personally would stick with Delaware. I'm a person who likes, you know, the known rather than than the, you know, big risk taking. And that's, that's an individual. Right. You know, kind of. Okay. Um, tell me about raising the funds. Like, do you help people raise funds? Like, what would you tell me if I'm going, let's say uh, I'm trying to raise funds right now, I'm setting up a company, what advice would you give me? Well, first thing I would say is, do you have a co-founder? Because I think solidifying that relationship in writing is super important. I've probably represented, let's say in the last 10 years, maybe a hundred startups. And if any of them, if there's a co-founder involved, uh, I would say 98% of the time, the co-founder relationship, you know, encounters some serious issues along the way. And so that would be the first thing I would ask. Next thing would be, who do you want to raise funds from? So, and what's the purpose? So are you looking for someone like I talked about before, strategic? Are you looking for someone who's going to add something to the mix that you don't bring to the table? So, you know, you know, you have the technology expertise. Are you looking for someone who maybe has the marketing expertise to bring to the table who, um, as your investor, or do you feel like I have my team, you know, everything's in place and I just want someone, a very passive investor to give me the funds and, you know, stay out of my way and let me do my thing very different, you know, very, very different routes. Mm -hmm. And so th those would be some initial questions. And then of course, how much do you want to raise? How much equity are you willing to give up? Do you want to have to put a value on the company at this point? Because there are ways to raise early rounds where you can avoid the whole valuation of the company. Okay. So that was obviously quite a lot of information. I'd like to maybe start off with the co-founder question. Let's say I don't have a co-founder right now, but I'm interested in taking on a co-founder. Can you guide me through some of your recommendations on going down that route with a co-founder? I mean, it generally, in my opinion, so I've been thinking, well, I, I probably wouldn't want a co-founder. I'd rather pay someone, you know, pay someone. But if I, let's say I can't afford to, that might be a reason. Is that a reason to take on a co-founder or would you say no? Yeah, I mean, they're certainly, depending on the size of the check you're asking someone to write you, they may want co-founder type rights and, and a little larger stake in the business than you would otherwise be giving. Okay. As an investor, you're saying. Exactly. Okay. Okay. What would be some of the immediate things that you would want to see written down if you're going down that route? Well, the first thing I would recommend is to make sure that you maintain a majority ownership and hopefully far more than that. 
but at the worst case, a majority. I mean, I think the most difficult situations I've seen are when there's 50-50 ownership and mm-hmm. there's any type of a dispute. And certainly, you know, that's been the case is I've, I have co-founders that are 50-50 owners. And in that, that case, I really like to have a co-founders agreement in place from day one with a dispute resolution mechanism built in. So, you know, oftentimes that's a buy-sell, which works um, so that if there's a dispute, one of the co-founders, either one, is entitled to go to the other and say, I would like to make an offer to buy you out at X dollars. And the co-founder who received the offer, the other founder, has two choices in that case. They can either say, yes, I'll sell to you for that price, or no, I'm not going to sell to you. I'm going to turn around and buy you out for the same price. And so that incentivizes the first, the offeror, to choose wisely in that price because they could end up getting purchased for that same price. Um, so that's one way. Second way to resolve disputes would be just to name a third party, you know, maybe the independent accountant for the company, name a particular mediator. Uh, so, you know, that those are some of the issues. And then second set of issues is more what happens if something happens to one of you? What happens if one of you isn't pulling your weight? Mm-hmm. Uh, what happens if one of you, you know, God forbid, death or disability, um, divorce where your shares in the company are involuntarily transferred to the spouse? Mm-hmm. How do we treat those issues? Those are some of the things that go into that agreement. Okay. Let's say you're just getting a company going and, and you want to buy your partner out. How do you place a valuation on, is it just essentially what the other partner feels like the company is worth that's decided between the two partners who is more willing to buy out the other one? Is that how the price is established or is it more formal than that? Depends on the stage of the company. So if you're talking about, you know, super early in the relationship and there isn't much value to the company, then it's sort of a, you know, here's what I'm willing to pay and what I'd be willing to accept back if the, you know, person, my co-founder comes back and says, I'm going to buy you. Once there's revenue, once there's value, maybe once there's some IP created, then typically I would rather see a formal appraisal process. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of different ways to, to go about that. Um, you know, some people have, each one of you is entitled to um, appoint an appraiser and each one of them does an appraisal and then a third, you know, and then a third party comes in and looks at the two. And, you know, I like the idea of one for money saving purposes, you know, to me, really what underlies my whole practice is, you know, obviously professionalism and doing the the best job to protect my clients from risk, but also startups don't want to spend all their money on legal fees. So um, I'm always thinking about that. And so, you know, something I, I like to say is each of you appoints an appraiser, neither of them does an actual appraisal, but they get together and agree on a third party that's totally independent that way, who does the actual appraisal. Okay, great. And can you tell me some examples of why customers split up? Like what, maybe even tell me some horror stories of partner breakups that you've uh, had to handle and why they happen, maybe how they could have been avoided. Sure. So one that's actually very interesting was a group of students who got, got together. They were actually high school students Mm-hmm. And they were part of a business incubator course, and they came up with a concept that actually has become a successful business today. 
And one of the, and there was no real agreement between them. They pulled something, they formed as an LLC, they pulled a form off the internet and mm-hmm. they signed that. No lawyer ever took a look at it. And one of the co-founders said, so they did it, they did a big pitch presentation to some professional VCs at the end of the course, and they were actually given money. One of the co-founders said, I'm not going to go to college. I'm going to do this. I'm going to pursue this. Mm-hmm. Uh, the other four did not. Uh, three gave up their rights. One said, I'm going to continue helping you. He went off to college. He joined a fraternity. He was partying. He was having a great time, which is, you know, more power to him. But yeah. um, my client in the end, you know, stayed home and lived in his parents' basement to pursue this business. And yeah. so now he, he actually went on Shark Tank. He was given, wow. yeah, he was actually given funds. Um, yeah. Incredible guy. And then, of course, you know, the co-founder comes out of the woodwork and says, I own like, you know, 60% of this business or something. Mm-hmm. And there was, you know, there was no agreement to guide the breakup. And so it turned into a, a lot of negotiation and, you know, emotion and time and legal fees to negotiate that breakup. So the other three that were in there, was it sort of all like, there was, sounds like there was five founders, so they were all 20% or something like that? Yeah. And so the other three gave up their 60% or did the one partner buy them out or or how did the one guy end up with 60%? Yeah, he did. He, the initial guy bought out the other three in the beginning for very little. They said like, you know, you're willing to take this and do something with it. We're thrilled for you. This isn't what we want to do with our lives. Um, the other guy, he really didn't have 60%. They weren't all equal from the beginning. Right. So he was, he had about 60% in the initial limited liability company. Okay. Was it basically just a negotiated buyout? Exactly. That's what it ended up being. Okay. But it took a year. It took a year, eh? Okay. So it sounds like in that situation, coming to someone like you and structuring this correctly right from the beginning could have avoided that. Correct. Yeah. Sure. What are some of the other common mistakes that you see founders coming, even if, um, you know, you're not negotiating buyouts? What are some of the common sort of, you know, miscommunications or, you know, what whatever that happened in the original structure of the company? I think a, a failure to delineate who's responsible for what and what each party is counting on the other to bring to the table versus having to bring in outside expertise and grant equity or actually pay money to someone. Um, you know, the time commitment, are you quitting your job, your full-time job for this? At what point are you doing that? You know, what resources are you expected to bring to the table? Okay. And how about guidelines on, on equity? Presumably if there's two people coming at the same time, starting a company. So my understanding, the recommendations that I've been given by some mentors is, you know, vesting ownership over time, you know, so is, can you give me some guidelines on that? Let's say two co-founders come to you, they both are equally enthusiastic about the idea, there's sort of clear delineation on skill sets. How would you structure that so that the equity comes out and settles, you know, correctly? Yeah, I love the idea of vesting equity so the way that works basically is whatever percentages they each want in the business, and even if that's 50-50, they would be granted that equity up front. 
and they would own it all for purposes of voting and any distributions that are made, which usually startups don't make distributions, but they fully mm. own their equity, but it's subject to forfeiture in the event that either one of them leaves the company and whether that's voluntarily or involuntarily. So, and, and really what's market right now, at least in the Midwest or in the United States is because it really does differ all over mm. the country. But what's market right now is after, tw- after one year, called the one-year cliff, 25% of each person's equity vests. And so Mm -hmm. it's no longer subject to a risk of forfeiture. Mm -hmm. And then um, over the next 36 months, in the remaining amount of the equity vests on an equal monthly basis. So for instance, if you have 100 shares you're given in the company and you, after a year, you're still there, you have 25 shares to walk away with. But then if the next month something happens to you or you get a great job offer or you, you know, what have you, then the, that's all you have. You forfeit the remaining amount of your shares, basically. Okay. And is that a fairly common type of structure that, that you've seen? It's not only very common, but it's really expected by, um, if you have sophisticated investors that are going to come in, they're going to want to see that. So I often have founders who come to me and say, you know, I've spent the last three years of my life sort of fully baking this idea. And now I'm ready to go. And you're telling me like, I don't have my equity for another four years. And, mm-hmm. and I say, you're welcome to do this however you want. I mean, you can certainly have, you know, all of your equity vested from day one. You may get pushback from investors. Mm-hmm. Okay, that makes sense. And from that, how would uh, you say majority ownership? It, sa- it sounded to me like you would prefer to have one founder have majority ownership, or is that only in a situation where the founder is taking on another co-founder? And how would you structure the majority ownership? Could it still be 50-50, there's, but there's still someone that has sort of um, majority voting rights? Well, that depends on the form of entity. So with an LLC, you can absolutely do that. And because it's a lot more flexible entity mm-hmm. with a C corporation, that's more di- difficult to do. Typically the votes follow and the money distribution, you know, the waterfall follows the shares and the percentage mm-hmm. ownership. Um, you can do that through by virtue of an agreement. And I, I definitely have seen that before where the board really essentially makes all the decisions and um, if there's only two board members, one has, you know, the tie-breaking vote. Okay. Uh, some of our listeners are not American. This is a obviously a very U.S.-focused discussion. But do you guide some, you know, foreigners to come in and, and set up companies in the U.S.? Because I understand that it's not that difficult for foreigners to come in and set up, a, you know, in Delaware or whatever. Yeah, I do. I do. I I work with immigration counsel in those cases. Just want to make sure that everything is done properly. Um, mm-hmm. But as long as I have that guidance, then absolutely yes. And does a, like um, a foreign based company that ha- sets up a U.S. company do they need to have a, one of the principles be American, or is it possible for no Americans to be involved in that company? It's absolutely possible, but I believe you need the right kind of visa. I don't think you can be a non-citizen and not, you know, and a non-resident. Okay. Like, you know, because most of the software companies, 
um, that might be listeners of the show would, you know, it's all remote. They have no presence in the U.S. So they don't really need to have one. Um, you think that they still need a visa with that or in those cases? Because I set up one uh, myself. I'm not American. And I set up one in Delaware as well. And I, I just had it because sometimes it's good to have, you know, the clients want to sign contracts with the U.S. entity. You know, I, I'm just wondering, like, how the foreigners can do that. I don't want to answer that wrong. So right, I, I, right. That's... Like, well, I mean, I always just make sure to, to have an immigration lawyer tell me that it's all kosher and then I'm, and then I'm fine with it. Okay. Fair enough. Okay. Let's move then now to um, trying to raise equity. Let's say in our um, hypothetical situation, you have a founder that comes to you. Um, and in this case, we can even do both scenarios. You've got one with two co-founders and one with a founder. Um, we can start off with the two co-founders. And they want to say, raise, they need like 150000 At this point, they've built some software. You know, let's say they spent thirty grand on a MVP or something. How do you feel like um, VCs would receive that? And how would they value it? And what sort of equity would they be looking to take on? Um, you know, in exchange for roughly $150,000, $200,000? Well, unfortunately, VCs here wouldn't, one hundred and fifty dollars is, is far too low. Okay, so sorry, we're really talking about angels then, is that right? Angels. Or is it, yes. okay, okay. Yeah, angels. Okay. Um, and typically angels don't want to um, invest in, they want to invest in convertible equity, so that there's no need to put a valuation on the company because that's just a really difficult thing to do with just an MVP. Okay. So typically they'll invest in either a convertible note or a safe, which is a simple agreement for future equity. Okay. Can you explain those two? Because someone has explained to me or someone mentioned a safe to me, but I'm not familiar with that. And then the convertible note as well. So what would be the agreement or the stipulation basis on that? I mean, would there be any collateral or would there be any risk for the founder if the project failed, you know, um, and couldn't pay the investors back? Yeah, so so the the issues that you're raising are exactly why a safe came along. So I'll, I'll give you a, a brief background. Convertible notes were really the norm until probably about five to seven years ago, and and again, this differs by region of the country, and I'm sure on an international basis as well. But so convertible notes basically say, you know, it, it is an unsecured note. The founder makes a promise to repay the you know hundred fifty thousand dollar investment usually in a period of, but market is one to two years and uh, at an interest rate about seven or 8%. Mm -hmm. And, but if the company either raises another round of capital or sells prior to the maturity date, then the note converts at a discount to the price that the next round investors pay or that the buyer of the company pays. And there's also a valuation cap that you can put on that. And so what, ha what started to happen though is very often, you know, startups, it's a, it's a tough business, tough world. And so when two years would come along and, and, and I think a lot of founders also, and, and this happened to me as well, you know, you start your business and you, you don't realize the time it really takes to find investors, to get the business started. And so, so what happens is two years comes along, it goes really fast and the founder doesn't have the money to repay the note. 
Mm-hmm. And so then there's all kinds of renegotiation. Nobody's happy. You know, sometimes the the investor calls the note actually, and there's litigation over it. And so Y Combinator came up with, which is, you know, investment group came mm-hmm. up with this concept of a safe and really a safe is a note, but it's not repayable. So it's really just a piece of paper that you give your investor saying, if we have an exit or we raise another round prior to the conversion, you know, prior to the maturity of this safe, which is actually, there's no maturity typically on a safe. So if we raise at some point another round or have an exit, you will be able to participate at a discount or, you know, and, and, or with a cap to the next price but there's no maturity date set on it. So if it never happens, the founder never has to go through that renegotiation and, you know, the, the, the emotion and, you know, of having to go to your investor and say like, I can't pay you back. Okay. So it sounds to me like there's huge advantages to going with the safe. Do people go with convertible notes? And if they do, why would they? So there's huge advantages from the founder's perspective of a safe. Absolutely. And so if you're doing, let's say, um, a friends and family round, or you have multiple angel investors, you know, then I would absolutely, from the founder's perspective, recommend a safe. The Mm -hmm. reason convertible notes still exist is if you have, I mean, interestingly, two different kinds of investors. One is a very sophisticated investor who knows really the safe is not worth very much unless, you know, there's a, unless there is an exit or a next round. And they're concerned about having, you know, something that says they get repaid their money. And then the second is actually the opposite, which is a very unsophisticated investor. And I don't, I don't mean unsophisticated in terms of whatever, you know, their business is, but when it comes to investing. Experience. Uh, right, right. Yeah. Experience. That's a better word. Um, then they might just not understand. And I've seen that a lot. Like, what is this thing mm-hmm. and what does it mean and what does it give me? And I'm uncomfortable with this because I just don't know what it is. Yeah. Okay. Then they would say, I prefer a convertible note. Exactly. Okay. The the one other thing I want to mention though, is the huge advantage to a safe is that it's a form. So it is, it is very rarely negotiated. There are a couple of terms that can be negotiated, which is just the discount, the valuation cap. Sometimes there's something called most favored nation status given to a safe holder, you know, and this could be a note holder as well where if the company raises another like safe round and they give better terms to the next round investor, you get the advantages of those same terms. But other than that, it's a form. And so your legal fees are vastly reduced versus a convertible note where there's, it can be, you know, automatic conversion. It can be, you know, voluntary conversion. There can be all different conversion events. There can be, it's just a much more negotiable instrument I've found. And so you know, you're talking about increased legal fees. Okay, great. So how often would you say that um, you you find founders are going with the convertible note route these days, like on a, on a percentage-wise basis is like 20% or- I was just going to say about 20. Yeah. And it sounds to me, usually it's because the investor is requiring it. Exactly. And are there any safeguards for the founder so that he doesn't put himself, you know, at risk, you know, that note maturing- coming to uh, maturation and basically says, oh, I can't pay this back right now. Is his, his only recourse is to go out and raise more money or what What are some of the ways that he can protect himself or how do you uh, get yourself out of a situation like that as a founder? Well, what I would say he or she 
<laughs> Sorry. That's right. <laughs> That's okay. But what I would say is that what I'd like to try to do is, is have a mandatory conversion at maturity, or, mm-hmm. or at least the founder has the right to determine whether there's a conversion at maturity. And that way, you know, even if the founder has to pay for, you know, an appraisal so that there's a value put on the company at maturity, mm-hmm. um, the note would convert into shares rather than the founder having to come out of pocket and somehow raise the cash to repay the note. Okay. And generally, what sorts of equity are you recommending um, for amounts for those first smallest raises? What sort of equity do you recommend for founders to be giving up for that amount of money to get something going? Well, the beauty is you don't, there is no determination of how much equity at all. Ah, okay. That's right. You were saying that. Right. Okay. So with the safe, that is, that's the same way. So how is that determined then? Can you just sort of in this, let's, let's go with the safe, um, the safe form. Is it just, what does the investor get in terms of, you know, their satisfaction of feeling like, okay, I'm giving some funds here to this company, getting them going. What do I get back in return? What you get back is typically a 20% discount and it can be more or less, but typically a 20% discount to the price that the next round investor pays Okay. for the same shares. And that makes a big difference. Yeah. Okay. And so it generally is, and do you find that most founders are going off and needing to always do more raises? Or do you find that, you know, a lot of founders are like, you know, what, I, we're cash flow positive right now. We don't need to do any more. No, typically they actually do want want to raise multiple rounds. It's sort of this, you know, grow or die, you know, kind okay. of kind of mentality. And if they're taking off, you know, they all of a sudden start talking about scaling and, you know, yes, we've conquered this market. Now we want to move to the next market and we need those additional funds to get there. Okay. So generally that's the scenario that you're dealing with. It's not so much bootstrapping. It's people that are wanting to, you know, kind of, this is a first seed round and they're, or friends and family, and they're just wanting to go on and generally do some more, do some more raising. Yeah. Okay. And um, is there any, is there any considerations when you initially structure that company to facilitate further down the road? I mean, how do you, how do you handle that? Are you just assume that everyone's going to immediately going to do more raises and how do you structure the company to better facilitate that, the sort of unknowns of, of that? Yeah. So what I typically do when, when you form a C-Corp in Delaware, you have to be very careful because there's a franchise tax there and it's calculated based on the number of shares that you have issued and the par value of those shares and the gross assets of the company. And so you really need to talk to someone before forming a Delaware C-Corp that knows how to navigate that because, Mm -hmm. so there's two ways to calculate their franchise tax and the state automatically defers to this one way of calculating. And you'll, so my clients will get a bill that'll say, you know, $80,000 of franchise taxes. And they'll, they'll say like, oh my God, oh my God, you know, and call hysterical. I'm like, don't worry if you set it up the correct way. There's an alternative way of calculating it, and I will do that for you and get it filed, and then it's $400. So big difference. Wow, that's a big difference. Yeah. Yeah. So the way that I typically set up a Delaware C-Corp is I have 10 million shares authorized at 0.0001 par value per share, and then I have the founders be issued a total of 4 million shares. Uh I 
1 million shares into a pool for future um, advisors and employees. And then I hold 5 million shares for Uh future investors. Okay. Okay. That makes sense. Well, so it does sound like the initial structure is very important to get because I mean, someone like me would, I would never know about that. So that's good to know. In terms of uh, raising money, do you give any guidance on like how do people can do that? Or is that not really what you do? Like, how do I go get my first 200,000? You know, like what, if I came to you and said that, what would you tell me? Well, there, I do. I do give guidance. There's a few ways. One is I have connections to several different angel investment groups. Mine are mostly in the Midwest. Uh-huh. Um, and then the other thing is that, and this is a route that I personally really like, is I also have connections to several different just high net worth individuals who like to do this. I mean, it's, you know, it's kind of become a, you know, when, when people have an exit from a company and want to put money back into the you know, into the startup ecosystem, or they've invested in real estate, they're in the market, and they just, you know, want to diversify, they think it's, you know, cool to support someone who's starting something new. And and what's happened is, I've represented several different companies where there are investors like that. And they call me afterwards and say, you know, I really liked working with you, will you look at deals for me that I that, you know, come my way? And make sure they're structured properly. Let me know the risks in them, and you know, and put me on your list in case you see different, you know, decks from companies that are interesting. Shoot them by me. And so, you know, I have those connections. I work with you know accountants that have those connections. So you know, it's kind of formed like its own its own sort of like ecosystem. Okay, so essentially, a founder could be if he wanted to go out and do this on his own. Maybe what he could do is kind of go and sort of look for people that have had exits that are they're maybe sort of consider themselves as angels already because they're like they're in it. They know they're sort of savvy with the whole exit process. And, and they also have some funds, presumably, you know, maybe they had a 20 million dollar exit or something. So those would be good people to approach uh, yeah. as a founder. Yeah, that's very helpful to know. Any other um, things that you'd like to leave us with as we're coming to the top of the hour? What other things that you would recommend that people really need to do when they're getting ready to either set up their company and go raise some funds? Well, I, I think what's really important is that the securities laws, whether you're selling a, a safe, a convertible note, giving shares in your company, even multiple promissory notes, those are you're selling securities. And mm-hmm. you're governed by the federal and state securities laws, and they require disclosure. So what they require is that you tell your investors anything that a reasonable person would want to know in making a decision as to whether or not to make that investment. So mm-hmm. it's really important that you don't just hand a safe to a potential investor in return for their money and everybody signs it. You need, um, I do a subscription agreement, a short description of the company with, you know, the product, the management bios, um, cap table, use of proceeds. And then the most important thing is my other exhibit is a set of risk factors that Mm -hmm. says anything and everything that could go wrong because you don't want an investor coming back to say, oh, you didn't tell me that you have seven competitors in your market who are all higher capitalized than you are and Uh venture backed. And how are you ever going to compete? Of course, I was going to lose my money and they'll sue you. So oh, really? okay. to me, that is, you know, a number one is 
is having is to that. have protection so the investors could come back and sue even though you're in an agreement which is you know the safe agreement you still need to have those initial protections set up absolutely okay and just before we go it sounds to me like a safe is the best route for people to be going to raise funds would you uh, agree with that i would i would yeah and for sure, someone should get some legal counsel before going into it. I mean, it sounds like if you're, you know, going to raise that amount of money, what kind of costs do you think are reasonable for people to expect if they're going to raise, say, 200000 they need a safe? What kind of costs are we looking at? Um, if you're talking about, if you've already formed the entity, you have the co-founder agreement in place, and you're just talking about the safe and the disclosure that goes along with it. Mm-hmm. My cost is typically three thousand mm-hmm. dollars. You know, the, if you go to a larger firm, it's significantly higher. Mm-hmm. But you know, generally, when you're looking at two hundred thousand, you know, looking at one percent or whatever, it's you know a good return on your investment there. Great. Okay. Well, thank you so much, Leslie. How can people find you? Uh, we'll of course have in the show notes all of your information. And if anyone wants to ask you some more questions, how can the people find you? Sure. Do you have my email address on there? I won't put that in unless you want me to. Yeah, I'd be happy to have you put that in. Okay, fine. I'll put that in. Yeah, and I'm always happy to answer questions, talk to anybody. There's no consultation fee. So right. okay, my email great. great. Thanks so much, Leslie. Thanks for having me. Pleasure. Mine too. Thanks for listening to the Big Break Software Podcast with your host, Jordy Wardman. Be sure to click subscribe and check us out on the web. Keep listening and your software big break could be right around the corner. <music>